Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. If you were given any kind of premonition that today would be your very last day, how would you spend it? Don't get up. <laughs> um, what would you do if, if somehow you learned that today that, that you had 24 hours left on this planet, 24 hours left of breath in your lungs, how would you spend it? Would it be a day that you spent with, with family, sharing good food, reminiscing about the, the times gone by? Maybe there's some bucket list items that you would want to, to try to check off the list. Maybe you'd go up here and, and take a, a hang glider flight. I would do that if it was my last day. I wouldn't do it otherwise. There's something about strapping yourself to a kite uh, that, that sounds unwise. But if it's the last day, what do you got to lose? Uh, maybe skydiving. I mean, that's something that, uh, that, that's exotic that uh, you might do if you weren't worried about tomorrow. Uh, maybe you find yourself scared. Maybe you're lonely, isolated as you try to process the news. Maybe there's some conversations that you would want to have, things that need to be need to be said, things that need to be heard. Maybe there's some forgiving that might need to happen. Maybe there's some folks that you would want to share the gospel with. Maybe some folks that God lays on your heart. I think that if we were given such a short notice, I think we'd all probably come to the same conclusion. We've not got a whole lot left to lose. Um, I was giving Spencer a hard time earlier. He, he said, uh, he said, what are you going to do, fire me this week? You know, what well, you got to lose, right? I mean, um, so, so what would you do? How would you spend that last 24 hours on planet Earth? Last week, we were introduced to the church's very first deacons. We actually get to follow the stories of a couple of these men for, for just a little while. We don't get a lot of their journey, but we do hear about just a little bit about what these guys do. And, and I will say that if the two men we get to follow in the Scripture who are deacons, if they're an example of the rest, if they're exemplary of all the other deacons in that list, I believe we can, do a, we can all agree the, the early church did a phenomenal job of choosing its very first deacons. And so we meet Stephen or as he would have been called by his friends of that day, Stephanos. You know, that's his Greek name, Stephanos. And that actually means a, a crown or a, or a garland, which when you realize what that means, it's a, a crown or a garland which is represented by the name Stephanos was a, was a reward given to somebody who wins a race. And so somebody finishes a race and they receive the crown or they receive the, the winner's garland. Maybe you remember seeing like sculptures and pictures of Caesar when he had the, the, little, uh, the little bit of, of greenery around his, around his head. That garland represents someone who was, who was a leader, someone who was in charge. That's what Stephen actually means. Well, back when we introduced him in chapter 6, we found out that Stephen was a man who was full of faith. He was filled with the Spirit. And we understand, too, that Stephen is someone who finishes his race well. So he has a very appropriate name considering the, what we know about him. It's very clear, though, that Stephen was not just interested in the title of being a deacon. It wasn't just something that he put on a name tag. Stephen was busy. Stephen was working. Stephen was working to make a difference in his church, making a difference in his community. And the Bible tells us that his activity does not go unnoticed. Stephen is sadly one of these men that I wish we knew more about, 
but we just don't get to spend much time learning from Stephen. Because as soon as we meet him, we find out that he's actually living out his last day. We hear him named earlier, but we don't really hear his story until he is neared the end of his life. I ask you to consider the question, how would you spend your last day? Well, let's consider how Stephen answers that question here in Acts chapter 6. And I would invite you to stand with me as we read a little bit of Stephen's story here from Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the, of the Cyrenians and of the, the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand his, the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Would you pray with me, please? God, thank you for the story of Stephen, for his courage, for his faith, for his works. Father, I pray that as we dig into his life for just a brief time today, that he would be an inspiration to each and every single one of us. Uh, Lord, bless us now as we consider these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, one of the interesting things we understand about deacons is that deacons, deaconing is, is not a, a career choice. It's, a, it's an office within the church. Uh, deacons have other jobs. We could look at our deacons here at Chat Valley, and we would understand that deacons here have got other jobs that they do, and, and, uh, and what they do at church is just in addition to what they do in their career. Stephen is a deacon. He was chosen to help serve the widows there in Acts chapter 6. However, we understand that he's got a little extra time on his hand because it appears that Stephen is the church's very first apologist. You say, well, what's he apologizing for? Well, that's not what an apologist does. An apologist is not your husband when he's done something stupid and you've, he's got to make it right. That's not an apologist. That's an apology. They're two different things. An apologist is someone who specializes in arguments, and men, that's not your wife. Your wife is not a, a, an apologist because she specializes in arguments. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Not like those kind of arguments. Not the kind of argument that you get into with your spouse or with your kids, but arguments in the sense of the academic or the philosophic sense. Arguments like you would get into in a, in a, in a debate, in a, in a college classroom or, or something like that. And so Stephen appears to be very adept at this. In fact, we're told that Stephen got into disputes. He got into arguments with Jews from different backgrounds. And as you think through this, he goes through the list of these Jews that Stephen was, was talking to. You 
you saw uh, men from the synagogue of the freedmen. Those were slaves who were free and had the stigma that goes along with it. There were Alexandrians. Those were Jews that were from Africa. And so there were Jews from all over the place that Stephen was having a conversation with. And if you think about it, many of the Jews that Stephen was, was disputing with were not Jews who would have been very familiar with Jesus. They were Jews from other parts of the Mediterranean. The, the Jews in and around Jerusalem, Judea, they heard about Jesus. They knew what Jesus was and who Jesus was and what he was doing. But these Jews that Stephen is dealing with were from other places. And so Stephen is bringing fresh arguments to people who perhaps have never heard anything about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what happens when Stephen begins to talk to these people, verse 12 we find that they begin to spin Stephen's arguments. And instead of saying that Stephen was bearing witness to the gospel, what they actually say is that Stephen was saying nasty things about Moses. That Stephen was, was bearing false witness against Moses. And again, we could easily see how they could come to that conclusion if they were unfamiliar with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, we need to understand that Jesus was the greater prophet, that Jesus was the better lawgiver. And so what, what Stephen was doing was simply bearing witness to the truth about who Jesus was in contrast to who Moses was and who these other points of comparison were. And so it's very likely that Stephen was encouraging these Jews from the synagogue of the freedmen and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians to turn away from their works-based salvation in the law and turn to Jesus Christ. He was pleading with them on the basis of sound argumentation to trust Jesus and leave behind the works that they were doing. He was doing a great job with it. We're told that, that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Meaning that his argument was so solid, was so sound, that, that nobody, could, nobody could, could, could make a case against it. Nobody could find a flaw in what he was saying. He was, he was winning every debate. And he was showing people just how true this was about who Jesus was. And so Stephen was doing a remarkable job, which means the enemies of the gospel were paying attention. Well, what happens next is quite predictable. Stephen, just like other apostles, was seized and brought before the council. And as I read through what happens to Stephen in Acts chapter 6, I can't help but think that it sounds so much like what Jesus went through and the trial that Jesus went through, that there were false witnesses and false accusations and, and things that Jesus said were taken out of context and spun around and used against him. And this is the same thing that's happening to Stephen. It's a full-blown show trial. Right? I mean, this is, this is televised. CNN has picked it up. Everybody is watching this argument being told against Stephen. And people who know the truth are, are going crazy. This is not what happened. This is not what he said. But we've got witnesses. And then the Jewish faith, if you've got witnesses, you've got a conviction, even if they're false witnesses. There's false accusations. There's mischaracterizations. There's things taken out of context. However, we learn that this time is a little bit different from what the other disciples had been through. This time the trial that he is experiencing is, is not one where they're saying, don't do this again, don't speak in these words again. Instead, this thing takes a very dark turn. We learn that this group is there not just trying to try him, but they're actually prepared to execute him if necessary. Knowing that this is about to transpire, you can't help but find this incredible example of astonishing courage. 
It goes along with all these other courageous acts of the early church, the disciples rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer reproach for the name of Jesus. It's all courageous, these incredible acts of courage. And what we see is is in Stephen, there's no fear in his eyes. There's no cause for concern in his eyes. We don't see Stephen wringing his hands in anxious anticipation of the verdict. He's not worried about his fate. He's not concerned about it. Instead, we're told that his face is like the face of an angel. Now, just be honest, I don't know what the face of an angel is like. I've never seen an angel, and so therefore I have no point of comparison to what the face of an angel is like. It's probably not like a Precious Moments figurine, if I had to guess. But if I had to sort of understand what's being said here, I would only imagine that the face of an angel is the face of something that's been in the presence of God. And I feel like that if I had been in the presence of God, that I had seen the creator of heaven and earth, that I would have every confidence that everything is going to be okay, right? I mean, I'm not walking by faith if I'm an angel. I'm not walking by, by, by a belief of what's coming. If I have seen the creator, if I've been in the presence of the divine, I don't feel like anything would shake me, Right? unmoved, stoic, unconcerned, assured, trusting. Those words, I feel like, had to describe Stephen's face, unmoved by what was about to transpire. So guess what? He's got nothing to lose, right? He's got nothing to lose. This would be his last day, and he's got nothing to lose. And so what does Stephen do? He brings a defense of the gospel right into the heart of the lion's den to the people who wanted to hear nothing about it. He demonstrated courage that that really is unmatched so far in the book of Acts. And the way that he dismantles this group of people and their view of the world is he attacks three of the most important pillars of Judaism, the land, the law, and the temple. And so if Stephen has been guilty of anything, he has been guilty of pointing people away from their false hope in the stuff of God, and he's asking people to find their hope in Christ Jesus alone. We need to keep that in mind today as we work through this. Our hope is not found in the things of God. Our hope is not found in the trappings of God. Our hope is found in Christ alone. Our hope is not found in a worship service. Our hope is not found in a song. Our hope is not found in a sermon. Our hope is found in Christ alone. And then we get into chapter 7, which is Stephen's incredible deconstruction of all of these false sources of hope. The first pillar of Stephen's defense is dealing with the land, the land of Israel. You see, the Jews had taken a very important part of God's covenant blessing, and they've elevated a part of God's blessing into something that was almost to be venerated as the people. You would have thought that they would have learned this lesson by now, that the land is something that God gives and God takes away. The land is part of the blessing that God gave to Abraham, part of the promise, but God had demonstrated time and again that he was unconcerned with removing the people from the land that they held in such high regard. God had never been afraid to deal with Israel and their land. But even when they weren't in the land, 
God was never far off. And so in spite of the fact that they were in, in Israel or not in Israel, God was still dealing and moving and working with his people. It's not like the border of Israel is here and God speaks and they step over the border and God no longer speaks. God was active in moving and speaking and dealing with people throughout the Old Testament regardless of their location, and that's exactly what Stephen's first point is if you read through his defense in chapter 7. He begins by asking them to look at Abraham. He says there in chapter 7, verse 1, brothers and, sisters, or brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. God first spoke to Abraham when Abraham was a long, long way away from the land of Palestine, from the land of Israel. God dealt with Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. God dealt with Abraham when he lived in Haran. And Abraham, who was called God's friend, was not even given the land. He was given a promise of the land that his offspring would possess the land, but Abraham never truly takes possession of the land. In Stephen's defense, he then takes us to the story of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph? He was, of course, born in Israel, in Palestine, there in the land, but he was quickly sent away. He ended up in Egypt, but while he was in Egypt, God used him a long way from the land to deliver his family and ultimately save a big chunk of the world from being devastated by a famine. When he wasn't in Palestine, God used him the most. He was the chief of staff for Pharaoh. Again, not in the land, and God still spoke, and God still moved, and God still did glorious things. Stephen then goes to, goes to Moses. Of course, Moses, Moses never even got to step foot in Palestine, never even got to go into the nation of Israel. He might have trained there as an Egyptian, you know, some sort of scout operation. We don't know, but Moses, as the leader, never once got to even go in to the land of Israel. But God spoke to Moses in the most personal and intimate terms. The Bible talks about God speaking to Moses as a friend talks to a friend. Moses could go into the tent of meeting and have a conversation with God. Moses got to see the glory of God through, through, as, as God passed by while Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock. In fact, it's the story of Moses that taught us that holy ground isn't a particular set of GPS coordinates. Instead, holy ground is wherever God is dealing with his people, wherever people go to meet God. If you remember, Moses was in the wilderness when he first heard from God, and he saw that bush that was on fire, and the first thing God said is, Moses, take off your feet or take off your shoes. Why? Because this is holy ground. It's where God is. It's not in Israel. It's where God is there in that moment at the burning bush. When you think about the story of Moses, you have to realize that the sum of God's greatest miracles didn't even happen in Israel, in the promised land. Some of God's greatest miracles happened in Egypt, in the Red Sea. You see, Stephen was helping these people to understand that if their hope was situated in geography, they were going to be sorely disappointed. Our hope is not found in geography. He then moves into the second pillar, beginning in chapter 7 and verse 37, where he talks about the law. You see, the Jews had a tendency to put their hope in the law, but the problem with putting your hope in the law is what? You can't keep the law. 
You, you can hope in the law, but you have a really hard time keeping the law. And Stephen was quick to point out that Moses saw past himself. He recognized that he was preparing the way for one who was yet to come. He quotes Moses' own words from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. He reminds his opponents that even Moses looked to Jesus. Even Moses looked beyond himself. He looked to one who would come who was better than Moses. And of course, these people paid lip service to the law. They tried to follow all their requirements and all the things that they were supposed to do. However, they joined a long line of Israelites who honored the law but failed to keep the law. Stephen, in his defense, reminds them of their short attention span, turning from the God who delivered them from Egypt to an idol made by the hands of Moses' brother. They hadn't been out of, out of Egypt long at all before they'd already turned their back on their deliverer and began to worship an idol made of the jewelry that they had collected. Stephen Stephen even reminds them of their gross idolatry, beginning here in verse 42, by quoting directly from the book of Amos. Can I just say that Stephen knows his Bible? Stephen knows his Bible. You know, you and I, we can drop John 3.16 or Romans 8.28 into a conversation, and we feel like Bible scholars. Well, John 3.16 says, if you're dropping Amos from memory... You know your Bible. You know your way around the Word. Stephen is standing there and he quotes the book of Amos off the top of his head. He powerfully makes the point, though, that the law was never able to save. It was only able to reveal just how lost we truly were. He says, you Israelites are not able to even keep the law that you hold up in such high regard. Then Stephen moves to the third pillar the third thing holding up their view of the world, and it's the temple. He starts in verse 44. You see, the Jews saw the temple as a way to manipulate God's presence and God's blessing, that as long as we've got this temple or, or the Holy of Holies or the Ark of the Covenant, as long as we've got this in our possession, then God's with us, God's on our side, we've got God literally in the box, and so therefore God has to bless us. And, and of course, the tabernacle was the, pre, the precursor to the temple. The tabernacle will eventually take the shape of the temple. The temple for the Jews was a symbol of God's presence, but it was never supposed to be a good luck charm or a tool to be used to manipulate God's blessing. The Jews of Stephen's day believed that, but this was not something that was concocted in their day. This was something that had always been a struggle for the Jews. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah preached a sermon about this very point. In Jeremiah chapter 7, the prophet says this. He says in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. It says, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this word and say, hear the word of the Lord. All you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. But do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, 
If you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever." You see, Jeremiah correctly calls out the problem. The Jews of that day had said the temple of the Lord was almost like a a chant, almost like an incantation that if we just chant, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, then God has no choice but to bless. God has no choice but to protect. God has no choice but to care and look over them. And God says that's not the right answer. He says the right answer is to, to do right, to Love justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God, as the prophet Micah would say. He says, amend your ways and your deeds. Execute justice with one another. Don't oppress people. Don't go after other gods. If you'll do that, well, then you'll walk with me. But if you're simply using my house as a good luck charm, then you've got the wrong idea. Stephen reminds them again of God's thoughts about the issue. He quotes Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1 says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, God says you can't build a house big enough to hold me, yet you think this house that you hold up and revere is in some way a good luck charm that's guaranteed to provoke my blessing. No. Because here's the thing, you can't keep God boxed up in a temple we recall correctly it wasn't that long ago prior to acts chapter 7 that jesus has already spoke conclusively to this issue if you recall when he died on the cross and that earthquake rocked jerusalem that the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple what happened to it it was damaged in the quake right now the bible says it was ripped from top to bottom god ripped the curtain in half that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. So there you have Stephen's three-point sermon. He makes a defense to the council, and in this defense, he topples the pillars of all the false, false confidence that the Jews had. But here's the thing. You can't just go into a room with all these opponents, do a mic drop, tear apart and demolish their worldview... Tell them that everything they've hoped in is wrong, that everything they've, they've thought is wrong. You can't just go into that room and turn around and leave. Any preacher will tell you after you've given a three-point sermon like that, you've got to do what? Time to get the choir ready to sing just as I am and call for an invitation, right? It's time for some folks to get saved. You can't leave that kind of devastation without putting a bow on it. So what's the invitation? You see, here's the thing. The only response to this level of defense is to put your faith and trust in Jesus. You see, his, his invitation, though, it wasn't some sappy, emotionally charged plea for people to come to Christ. He, he didn't say, choir, let's sing just as I am. He didn't say, if you need to give your life to Christ, come down and I'll pray with you. He didn't do that. He didn't do what we did to do, we do today. Listen to what he said in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people! 
preacher. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. We might be tempted to read Stephen's sermon here. And, and I know that I've read this in the past and, and I've kind of read through it really quickly. And, and I thought to myself, you know, this is a good 30,000 foot overview that Stephen gives. A good high-altitude look at the story of the Bible. This is, this is from Abraham to Jesus. It's everything you need to know. But then I realized that, that Stephen's not, he doesn't need to give them an overview of what the Bible says because these are the people of all who know what the Bible says. And instead, Stephen here is using the biblical story to, to correct, to reprove, to challenge these men. And you can see him as he's talking, getting madder and madder and madder. What do you do with a sermon like this, though? I think the same principle that Stephen is applying to this Jewish council, I think the same thing is true for us as well. And it begins with a simple question. Where does our confidence lie? Where do we place our trust? We might even find that we have the very same misguided sources of trust that Stephen's opponents had. Think through this with me for a moment. The first pillar was, was land. We're all Americans, right? We need to be very careful that we do not conflate our American citizenry and our kingdom citizenry. The two are not the same thing. I am proud to be an American. I am so thankful that God has given me the, the privilege to be born in this country, to have the freedoms that we have, the liberties that we possess. I firmly believe this, however. Our generation is witnessing the undoing of this nation. We're watching it happen right before our eyes. And the truth of the matter is this. There are too many frictions and too many factions that exist right now. Just take, for example, the Texas abortion law that was allowed to take effect this week. If you haven't watched the news or know what's going on, Texas has the strictest abortion law in the country now, effectively banning all abortions in the state of Texas, specifically after six weeks. But the fact of the matter is, is most of the time, um, you don't even know that you're pregnant until, until close to the time when, when this abortion law takes over. We know this law will end up at the Supreme Court. No doubt whatsoever that this law will end up at the Supreme Court. Church, I want you to imagine with me what's going to happen if the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade. It will make the protests of last summer and the Black Lives Matter movement look like a birthday party. I pray I'm wrong. I don't think I am. 
We've seen that there is no compromise with the radical LGBT movement. There is no compromise. There is no, you do your thing and leave us alone. It's not happy. They're not happy until everyone says we celebrate together in a Romans 1 fashion. It's just a matter of time. As an American, I'm troubled. I'm troubled to see the direction that we're going. But can I say something? Please receive this in the spirit that it's intended. As a Christian, I am unmoved. I am unmoved. Why? My citizenship is in heaven. I'm a citizen of a greater kingdom with a better king. My citizenship is not changed regardless of what my passport says. My citizenship is unmoved if my passport is no longer valid. And the reality is, is that if I'm taking an honest look at history, I have to see this, that God raises up nations and God tears nations down. And if the Lord should tarry, I see no reason to believe that pattern will not continue. As a matter of fact, if I'm reading my Bible correctly, we understand there will come a day, and it's sooner today than it's ever been, that there's only going to be one nation with one ruler, and it's going to be a wicked nation, and it's going to carry this world all the way to the end. So I have to see that coming, right? I have to recognize that that's on the horizon. I need to to at least be mindful of it. So it's just a matter of time. Therefore, my hope cannot be in land or in my nation or any extension of that. Secondly, law. As a Christian, we rightly hold up the Bible and affirm what it says, right? This is what the Word says. I love Jeremiah. This is what the Lord God says. Thus saith the Lord as the Old Testament prophets would thunder. We affirm the Bible. But we need to be weary that we do not treat the Bible as a book to be read, but a message to be applied to our hearts. The words of God have to have a home. Otherwise, we're no different than the Pharisees of old. If we only know what it says and we miss the message, we've missed the point. If we only know what the words say and they don't ever change our heart, then we've missed the point of the Word of God. It is designed to to change us, to sculpt us, to make us more and more in the image of God. And if we miss that, we've missed the point. If we're not careful, we can receive the Word of God and still completely miss Jesus. The third pillar, temple. Temple. The temple was the, the house of God. We don't have any temples today, but we do have these things called churches. And in our vocabulary, church means two different things. Church means the body, and we only talk about that when the building disappears, right? The church house burns down. The church house is hit by a tornado. The church house is taken out by an earthquake. The church house is closed by government action. And we say, well, the church is closed. But then we say, you know, the church is the body. But whenever somebody gets up on Sunday and says, I'm going to church, they, we know what they're saying. They're going to the place. They're going to the building. They're going to the house, right? Listen, church does not save you. The church house will not save you. There are a ton of people today who will brag about their church membership but they have no inkling to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. As if that church membership is going to get you into heaven. I go to church. I belong to this church. I went to this church when I was a kid. 
the number of people who were on the roll of local churches is astonishing because they are on the roll of a local church, but they're going to miss the role of the church. So understand this. You can live in the greatest, most powerful, most privileged nation the world has ever known. You can know what the Bible says. You can be on a church membership role your entire life. And you can still miss Jesus. It's going to be a bunch of people who bust the gates of hell wide open who went to church knew what the Bible said and were proud Americans I hope today that that doesn't apply to anyone here in this room but if it does it's a real simple fix Put your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Not the church, not the Bible, not the nation. Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, resurrected. The only hope we have. How much did this sermon cost? Cost him everything, didn't it? He asked for a response. He said, you stiff-necked people. <laughs> you need Jesus. What happens? The dignified men of this council. Can you imagine? This, 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 this lead, leading body. This group of religious leaders. They become a, a rage mob. It says in Acts chapter 7, verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. You imagine being so angry at what you're hearing that the only thing you can do is plug your ears like a toddler whose parents just told him no. They stopped their ears and this group of dignified men rush at Stephen and we're told they cast him out of the city. Well, they had to get him into the city, to the, out of the, to the edge of the city first. So you know they had to drag him through the streets. And we're told that they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Don't miss that. We think this was some neat and clean and quick execution. Uh-uh. These guys had to strip down their outer garments because stoning somebody took work. If you're going to stone somebody, you were invested. It wasn't like pulling the handle on an electric chair. If you're going to stone somebody, that requires you picking up 20-pound rocks and hurling them at the person that you're trying to kill. And so this dignified group of men were standing there half-naked in the, in the hot sun as they were picking up rocks and throwing them at this young man. His only crime was directing people to Jesus. And they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, 
receive my spirit. This brave ambassador for Christ became the first martyr of the Christian church. And here we are 2,000 years later, and he definitely wasn't the last. We know that this day in dark corners of the world, men and women continue to shed their blood for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. But don't miss the results. Don't miss the outcome here. Because standing there, watching over the garments of the executioners, was a young, radically conservative Jew named Saul. You couldn't write a better story at this point. Now, this is the movie in the making right here. This is, this is the next section in the sequel, right? We're introduced to this new character, and he is a bad guy. He is a bad dude. He is supervising this whole thing. He is sitting there watching the clothes. He's too, he doesn't want to get blood on his hands, so he's standing back making sure that everybody's garments are protected. But there's Saul watching this whole thing unfold, giving his approval to the process. All of this points to this singular fact it doesn't matter how big a mess your life is or how big a mess you've allowed yourself to get into. God is bigger than that mess. And God can take whatever situation you've got today, and if you will surrender to him, man, he'll do stunning things. If you didn't know what was happening, if you didn't, have the, if you didn't sit in Sunday school as a kid your whole life, this moment right here, like, it's a page-turner. Who is Saul, right? Who is this guy? Chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. Who is this guy? This is like the Darth Vader of the Bible, right? This is Anakin Skywalker right here. He's a bad guy. He's gone all into the dark side. And chapter 8, verse 2, uh, and, and then arose a, on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and people were scattered throughout all Judea and Samaria, and except the apostles, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And God says, I'm not done yet. And God would look at each of us today. Not done yet. There's still work to be done. You're still useful to me. I still want you to be part of the task, part of the job, part of the journey. I just need you to surrender to me. Stop putting your hope and trust in the wrong things. Stop trusting in the things of God. And start trusting in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? God, you are a remarkable storyteller. What we find in this long section of Scripture, if this doesn't move us, if this doesn't inspire us, and I don't know what will. 
a young man, who'd only recently trusted Christ, who'd only recently been set apart as a deacon, who'd only recently begun to understand the power of the Holy Spirit at work in his life, but to stand in front of the most hostile audience he could imagine, second to only Caesar himself, How many of us in that moment would say, I'm sorry for what I said. I won't say it again. I'll mind my own business. I'll go to my house. It'll be just my family and me. We won't worry about this, this, this public ministry. Just spare my life. Not Stephen. So God, we see him as a, as a stunning example of faith. And so I would pray today that, given the opportunity, that I would have his courage. That we would have his courage. I pray today that we're raising a generation of young people who will have that courage on the day that they're called to give an account for the hope that they have. And inasmuch as we seek to follow that example, God, would you guard our hearts against the, the temptations to let our hope be in the wrong places? Our hope is found nowhere but Jesus. And all the things that you give us, the, the, the Bible and the church, and all those things are good and they encourage us and they inspire us and they teach us. They draw us nearer to Christ. But it's only Jesus who saves us. So Lord, if we've been looking for some other salvation... May we turn our back on that today and turn and trust Christ. If there's any here today in this room who've been trusting in the wrong things, I pray today that you would meet with them and that you would draw them to yourself. We need Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.